One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Episode 11, A Knight's Honor. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. My name is Yoke Boy, broadcasting from England. And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And for our 11th episode today, we have something special. Yeah, something a little bit different. We've teamed up with Westeros.org posters, Milady of York, Brash Candy and Dog Lover. Now, this group is launching a reread on the Westeros forums, and it's all about Sandor Clegane. So, to tie in with the launch of their reread project, we have an accompanying episode about Sandor and Milady, Brash Candy, Dog Lover, and also their close collaborator, Lyanna Stark, have all worked with us to make this episode of Radio Westeros. That's right. We have five sections here today, and we'll be joined by Brash Candy and Dog Lover to help present the work. And you might remember them from our Sansa and John episodes, respectively. Unfortunately, Milady of York and Lyanna Stark can't join us today, but they have provided their work for us to use. So, all six of us have worked closely together to give you Radio Westeros a night's honour. And given we're accompanying this Sander reread project, we'll begin today with an overview of Sander's arc, written by Milady of York. Then we'll look at Gregor's effect on Sander, led by Yoke Boy. Yeah, then Brash Candy will present her thoughts on Sansa's influence on Sandor, followed by Lady Gwyn outlining Arya's relationship with Sandor. And finally, Lyanna Stark, who I met in the queue for a George R.R. R. Martin reading at Loncon, by the way, has recapped the Sandor equals Gravedigger theory, and this will be presented by Dog Lover and myself. So, an ambitious collaborative group project today. With five different writers, we're going to see some different kinds of analysis with the Gravedigger theory at the end. And, just for good measure, we'll throw in readings of Sandor and Gregor's battle and Arya leaving the Hound for dead, as well as a pseudo-advert from Clegane's Kennels. And with the song from Carlene, who was very popular in our last episode, that's the gist of today. If you're interested in reading or participating in the Sander Reread Project, we link to it on our website at radioesteros.com when it begins. Yeah, it's due to begin on the 16th of February 2015 and will run for around three months. It will be housed in the Reread subforum at westeros.org. Milady, Brash Candy, and Dog Lover have great plans for the project, including a guest spot for our very own Lady Gwyn. That's right, I'll be participating as one of several guest writers for the reread, and I'm really looking forward to working with these ladies again. 
Yeah, it's really great to see collaborations going on in the fandom. And speaking of which, with six people involved, this is by far our most ambitious and collaborative podcast yet. Given we're accompanying the reread, there's going to be perhaps a different tone to our analysis today, and we really hope that you enjoy it. So here's our look at Sandor Clegane. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the ladies' favours, they are silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. So, first of all, we bring an overview of Sandor Clegane, recapping his story so far. Milady of York has prepared some notes, but can't join us today. Instead, we welcome back Brash Candy, who some of you might remember from our Sansa episode. Hi there, Brash Candy. Hi, York boy. Thank you so much for your invitation. I'm really pleased to have come to talk about one of mine and Milady's favourite characters and pass on some of this enthusiasm to your listeners. Okay, so you're embarking on this Sandor reread. He's really a secondary character, so it's interesting that you chose a reread project on him. Can you explain to us what Sandor tells us about the importance of secondary characters to this story? Certainly. If anything defines Martin's secondary characters as a whole, is that they can be as richly layered as the protagonists with a voice, and arguably some can be even construed as richer and more engaging. Perhaps none exemplifies the writer's deafness with characterization better than the Hound. Not only because it was possible to convey his complex personality and build a consistent narrative arc for his story without the benefits of a point of view, but also because it was done so mainly through the eyes of two young girls. That, in my opinion, is a literary feat in itself. Yes, I think it is. And given this is a reread project, let's talk through Sandor's story to give our listeners a recap of what he's been through so far. Sure. Let's first have a look at how he's brought into the story. When we're first introduced to him in A Game of Thrones through the eyes of Eddard Stark, the whole thing has a rather neutral tone. We aren't told anything good or bad about him, neither do we know who he is and what he does. We don't know he is the Hound. And yet, the introduction contains a detail that at the time seemed little more than a throwaway curiosity. There was Sander Clegane with his terrible burned face, describes Ned, as if wanting to attract our attention towards this characteristic disfigurement. This is the first clue that there's something about this man that the author wants to tell. It causes us to start wondering what could be the story of those scars that made him into the person we'll soon know. Yeah, there's definitely an immediate air of mystery. But soon we acquire quite an unfavourable opinion of him by virtue of his position as a Lannister Bannerman. Worse still, he's Queen Cersei's man and Prince Joffrey's, two instantly dislikable lions, and on whose orders he commits the killing of the butcher's boy, Mika. This murder, as Ned sees it, brands Sandor as one of the retrobates in this story. Yes, this time Ned's account ceases to be neutral, and it takes Sansa to show us the other side of the coin when Clegane gives her an unexpected confession of the most deeply buried secret of his life, his burning by his brother as a child. That can be considered a turning point, both narratively with regard to his character growth, 
as well as for the reader's conceptualization of his overall personality. So now we know who the Hound is and why, and witness the onset of his breaking apart from the Lannisters, we get a glimpse of his chivalrous side at the Hand's tawny, and we see that he's loyal to his masters in the coup d'etat. But also we see him debut as Kingsguard, committing high treason for the sake of Sansa, stopping her from pushing the king down the battlements to his death, and then keeping this secret. Yes, we do get several glimpses of Sanders' protective side in-game, and then a clash of kings could be considered as the narration of his slow progress towards reclaiming his identity, which has been warped by the circumstances of his burning and his growing up under the shadow of overlords that shaped him into a tool of destruction they could use. Sander behaves more following the dictates of his inner compass and less obediently towards his royal employers. And Sansa is key as a motivating factor in this, as we can surmise from his first appearance in the book, supporting her lie to Joffrey to spare Dontos, and again covering for her before the King's Guard on her return from the secret meeting with a fool, which also underscores his developing attraction to her. Mm-hmm. And then Sander, who had mocked True Knights previously, is himself cast into the role of Knight rescuing the Maiden when riots break out in the city, which is a courtly love hallmark that here gets the trope reversal treatment Martin is adept at. Clash is also the volume in which we learn more facets about him than in all the other volumes, as he opens up like nowhere before. We learn, for example, that for him, his sobriquet of Hound has a different ring than the disparaging dog used by Joffrey because it ties back to his grandfather, of whom he's proud and might likely be his role model in his father's and brother's stead. And we can see that there's more to Sandor than being a mere glorified bodyguard as he may have appeared. He makes an attempt to interfere with the king's orders to beat Sansa, which no other king's guard does. And when war arrives to the capital, he's one of only two chosen by the imp as commander of mixed troops. This reinforces Eddard's former observation that besides Jaime, Sandor was the most capable. And he shows good battle skills and tactics until fire triggers some form of post-traumatic stress at the Blackwater. Yes. And the definite parting of ways with his current liege comes as a result as he can no longer continue after the demand to do battle nightmarishly surrounded by wildfire. That he goes to Sansa's bedchamber to take her away to her family does hint that he might have been looking for a new cause and new liege lords to serve, and it certainly does highlight that she had a place in whatever plans or wishes he had. Yet, the confluence of battle stress, PTSD, and inebriation added to the misinterpreted signals of rejection, ignite a violent reaction. Sander threatens Sansa at knife point, breaking down at her singing, and then leaving for good, the bloodied symbol of his position in life tossed away. Right, Sandor leaves that bloodied Kingsguard cloak with Sansa. And we don't see him again until he's caught by the Brotherhood without banners who hang him up in a cage. Brought to their refuge, he has to hear dozens of questionable charges for his supposed crimes, to which he gives some blackly hilarious answers that expose the less than pristine standards of his captors. Yet one charge is true. He killed Micah, who was innocent, and for that, Arya will hold him accountable until they separate. 
He wins his trial by combat, but is forced to relive his childhood trauma a second time and breaks down also for a second time. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So his period of Arya is spent trying to reach the family that he hopes will reward him best, at best with a position in their household and a nobility title maybe, and with just gold in exchange for the girl at worst. But that's not to become a reality. The Red Wedding happens and he has to fight to get himself and the child out alive from the bloodbath. With no goal, no master, no source of income, no roof overhead, and all hopes for a future evaporated just an inch away from being grasped, all he has left is to take care of Ari as best as he can, seek other relatives to deliver her into, and try to scratch a living in war-ravaged lands in a state of profound depression that he draws with wine and physical exhaustion through work. And more is added to this psychological burden at the Crossroads Inn, where he comes in throwing all caution to the wind like a man no longer caring for his own safety. Lannister men are there, and he knows that he'll have to use his sword to survive this place. The news he hears from them has a negative impact on Sandor, who has consumed quite a lot of wine before he's told that Sansa has been married to the imp. And then he goes on to drink more. Yes, and in such a state, he duels with his brother's soldiers, being wounded three times. Two of the wounds are little more than cuts, but the leg wound swells and becomes infected. And a hound, weakened by loss of blood, lack of food, and high fever, is forced to lie under a tree to await a death that he sees as inevitable, but wants to come quicker by means of golden aria into finishing him off with a stab in the heart. And one point that often gets missed is that Sandor's death scene echoes the scene of his confrontation with Aya at his trial. As we'll see later, physically and psychologically, Sandor is in the same state, and the scenes follow a similar script. In both cases, what motivates him to speak is Arya's desire to kill him, which he also desires because of regrets he carries and due to the pain that he's in. So Sandor encourages Arya to kill him, although she displays uncertainty both times. The scenes are in parallel. Yes, and in both, Arya insists that he killed Micah and then attempts at killing him when he's wounded and weakened by pain, but stops and stammers when he looks at her in the face, making it two times that she can't kill him whilst looking him in the eye. He encourages her to do it, and she mentions Micah a second time at different times in both scenes as if needing reassurance. Then the Hound admits that he did kill the butcher's boy and laughed, and after he admits this murder, his face contorts in pain on both occasions, the second time at the end of his speech. Right after this is when she mentions Sansa, the beatings that she endured, and adds other details, which are different in both scenes. Finally, Arya loses the dagger, steps away, and both times wishes for him to suffer, and has angry words at the end. She has thus been in the position to judge and execute him twice and lets him off. In a nutshell, his last words on page are a good summary of his deplorable deeds in the service of House Lannister, his regrets, his shame and self-reproach, and his sense of loss, all tinged by a sense of personal failure to help the girl he left in the Red Keep. 
and there isn't any more news about him when we reach a feast for crows. We wonder what might have become of Sandor Clegane, if he's dead or if he survived. The first mentions of him in the fourth book are negative, a killer, a rapist, an outlaw. But by now, we know him well enough to take it with a pinch of salt. And by the time Brienne slips into the Quiet Earl, seeking information in hopes of locating him and whichever Stark girl he is with, we've had plenty of time to guess it's not him before it's written explicitly. Martin isn't subtle with throwing into sharp relief all the clues that point beyond a reasonable doubt that the brother gravedigger is Orsandor, recovering in the monastery and paying penitence by burying the dead. And Lyanna Stark will be talking through that theory later on. Yeah, as we'll see in that Gravedigger segment, the elder brother's words to the Maid of Tarth sound like a eulogy, and they're quite appropriate for the Hound's epitaph. Very much so. Um, When the Hound's schema is left behind to decompose, it's time for Sander to start his recovery. And under this light, his wound is therefore beneficial as it stopped him on the path to self-destruction. He's also been fortunate in that he was found by a healer that not only excels at his work, but also understands him. Because he himself broke down and died as a result of a fatal wound. He is at rest, said the elder brother. And for how long he's at rest? Only Martin knows. But one thing we're reasonably convinced of is that Sandal's arc is in no way concluded, and that he still has a place in the story awaiting his reappearance. Yes, and this is the story so far that we aspire to analyze more in depth in the reread that I will be hosting with Miladia Bjork and Dog Lover. So we do hope that this overview has piqued your interest in Sander Clegane enough to join us in the discussion. Yeah, it sounds like a great project, Brash. And that's why we're doing this accompanying podcast. Okay, so that is it for our overview of Sandor Clegane. Thanks so much to Milady of York for preparing these extended notes, and thanks to you, Brash Candy, for helping me present them. No problem, York boy. It was a very enjoyable discussion. Yes, it was, and you'll be joining us again later to present your ideas on Sandor and Sansa. But next are my thoughts on Gregor's effect on Sandor, and Lady Gwyn will be with me. To lead us in, here's a reading of that exciting moment in game. It's at the hands tawny when Sandor steps up to his fearsome older brother. In the middle of the field, Sir Gregor Clegane disentangled himself and came boiling to his feet. He wrenched off his helm and slammed it down onto the ground. His face was dark with fury and his hair fell down into his eyes. My sword, he shouted to his squire, and the boy ran it out to him. By then, his stallion was back on its feet as well. Gregor Clegane killed the horse with a single blow of such ferocity that it half severed the animal's neck. Cheers turned to shrieks in a heartbeat. The stallion went to its knees, screaming as it died. By then, Gregor was striding down the list towards Sir Loras Tyrell, his bloody sword clutched in his fist. Stop him, Ned shouted, but his words were lost in the roar. Everyone else was yelling as well, and Sansa was crying. It all happened so fast. The Knight of Flowers was shouting for his own sword as Sir Gregor knocked his squire aside and made a grab for the reins of his horse. The mare scented blood and reared. Loras Tyrell kept his seat, but barely. Sir Gregor swung his sword, a savage two-handed blow that took the boy in the chest and knocked him from the saddle. The courser dashed away in panic as Sir Loras lay stunned in the dirt. 
But as Gregor lifted his sword for the killing blow, a rasping voice warned, Leave him be, and a steel-clad hand wrenched him away from the boy. The mountain pivoted in wordless fury, swinging his longsword in a killing arc with all his massive strength behind it. But the hound caught the blow and turned it, and for what seemed like an eternity, the two brothers stood hammering at each other as a dazed Loris Tyrell was helped to safety. Thrice Ned saw Sir Gregor aim savage blows at the hound's head helmet, yet not once did Sander send a cut at his brother's unprotected face. It was the king's voice that put an end to it, the king's voice and twenty swords. John Aaron had told them that a commander needs a good battlefield voice, and Robert had proved the truth of that on the trident. He used that voice now. Stop this madness, he boomed, in the name of your king. So, hope you enjoyed that reading. Sandor standing up to his nasty big brother, Gregor Clegane. And a good place to start analysing Sandor and the relationships that have shaped him is with Gregor. Yeah, we can learn a lot about Sandor's background by looking at Gregor. So we get an early introduction to Sander, who ends up killing a child and showing no remorse. At this stage, the reader could wonder if Sander might be a monstrous character. It's at the tourney of the hand that we see more depth added to Sander's character, and fairly quickly we're able to sympathize with him. Right, so this huge, aggressive, burned, scary man suddenly decides to open up to the delicate and innocent Sansa Stark. First of all, Gregor is introduced to the reader in appropriately brutal fashion. He causes, in quote, the most terrifying moments of the day. Yeah, Sir Gregor rode against Sir Hugh of the Vale and killed him, the point of the mountain's lance splintering in Sir Hugh's throat. So, what an introduction to Sir Gregor Clegane, the mountain that rides. And this brutal introduction is given further depth when Sander talks to Sansa. Sandor tells Sansa that Gregor would have noticed Sir Hugh's gorget, the neck protection, was unfastened, and says Gregor killed him on purpose. He says, You think Sir Gregor's lance rode up by chance, do you? Pretty little talking girl, you believe that. You're empty-headed as a bird for true. Gregor's lance goes where Gregor wants it to go. And Sander follows on with the story of how his face was burned. He insists Sansa take a good look at his face, which is described grimly and in great detail here. The left side of his face was a ruin. His ear had been burned away. There was nothing left but a hole. His eye was still good, but all around it was a twisted mass of scar, slick black flesh, hard as leather, pocked with craters and fissured by deep cracks that gleamed red and wet when he moved. Down by his jaw, you could see a hint of bone where the flesh had been seared away. So, Sandor's wounds are absolutely horrific. No ear, hints of bone. He tells Sansa that when he was six or seven, he played with Gregor's toy. Gregor is five years older and had no interest in the toy he'd outgrown it. But when he found Sandor with it, he says, There was a brazier in the room. Gregor never said a word, just picked me up under his arm and shoved the side of my face down in the burning coals and held me there while I screamed and screamed. Yeah, Gregor, who is much larger than Sandor, here he's described as six feet tall and muscled like an ox at 11 or 12 years old. When he does this terrible thing to a six or seven-year-old Sandor, 
You can only imagine the terror and helplessness young Sander felt when this monster, remembering it's his brother, someone that should have loved him, held his face against burning coals until his ear had completely burned off. Right, and you have to imagine that the emotional scars of having your own brother do that for no good reason would run as deep as the scars Sandor carries on his face. And there's further torment in that Gregor doesn't seem to have been punished at all. His father actually lied to cover up this heinous act. And we really can't understate the effect this moment had on Sander. He says, only a man who's been burned knows what hell is truly like. Mm. So now, in this moment of confession, the reader considers Sandor less the monster he initially seemed, and very quickly we sympathise with him. It's Gregor Clegane that's established as the true monster, and we sense a depth to Sandor's character, making him more intriguing and interesting. George using Gregor to replace Sandor as the monstrous brute of the story is solidified shortly afterwards, when Gregor rides against the Knight of the Flowers in the semi-final of the jousting. So Gregor once again displays his pathological brutality when unhorsed by Loris, who was partaking in gamesmanship by riding a mare in heat, distracting Gregor's frisky stallion. Gregor was unhorsed and then rose at close to eight feet tall, the largest man in the kingdoms. He called for his sword, and it says, Gregor Clegane killed the horse with a single blow of such ferocity that it half severed the animal's neck. Cheers turned to shrieks in a heartbeat. The stallion went to its knees, screaming as it died. Gregor then quickly turned his attention to Loras, bashing him off his mount. As he moved in to kill Loras, it says, But as Gregor lifted his sword for the killing blow, a rasping voice warned, Leave him be, and a steel-clad hand wrenched him away from the boy. And of course, the rasping voice was Sanders. He protected Loras and went up against his towering brother. After countless blows, King Robert called the halt to the fight. Interestingly, Ned notes that thrice... Ned saw Sir Gregor aim savage blows at the Houndshead helmet, yet not once did Sandor send a cut at his brother's unprotected face. Yes, so we see that Sandor, in his own way, is chivalrous, despite what Gregor has put him through, and the fact that his big brother is aiming for his head here, Sandor doesn't aim for Gregor's vulnerable face. This undoubtedly shows that Sandor has some kind of code of honour that his brother simply doesn't. And it reflects really well on Sandor's character. Yeah, it does. And then Sandor ends up claiming that he is no knight. Sansa had previously told Sandor that Gregor is no true knight. And this is Sandor's problem with knighthood. Gregor was knighted and anointed, all after burning his face and knowing what Gregor is capable of. You can understand the disdain Sander feels towards the institution of knighthood. It's an empty, meaningless, hypocritical status, and he believes this with good reason. Yeah, and in this scene, it really seemed that Sandor behaved more like a knight than Gregor. And it's worth pointing out that the toy that Sandor wanted to play with, which he was so brutally punished for, was a toy knight. Yeah, and this indicates that once upon a time, young Sander might have dreamed of being a knight. After he stole the toy knight, Gregor burned his face and then went on to become a knight himself. 
Sanders' dreams and childhood idealization of knighthood were clearly smashed apart, and so we see his determination to avoid knighthood, even after being admitted into the Kingsguard. Yeah, and Sansa's comments about Gregor being no true knight opens a theme in the books. What exactly is a true knight? This seems to be an ideal, perhaps impossible to attain fully, and a theme we'll be following closely in upcoming episodes. Yes, we will. And Sander, despite him not being perfectly chivalrous by any means, does sometimes embody facets of the true knight. It's interesting that Ned calls Gregor Clegane a false knight later on in Game of Thrones, again making us think of the brothers and bringing into question the validity of acquired knighthood, just as Sander does. It seems that being a true knight has little to do with having a sir in your name, and Sandor, as a realist, learned this a long time ago. Okay, and so we learn more about the effect Gregor might have had on Sandor when we learn about the Clegane family. Just before the horse incident, we learn from a Ned POV about some rumours. First of all, Gregor's first two wives died suspiciously. Also, Sandor had a sister who died under, in quote, queer circumstances. Sandor's father had also been killed in a suspicious hunting accident. And with no mention of a mother, and this being the extent of the Clegane family, you have to consider that Gregor might have taken Sandor's entire family away from him by killing them for gains and estates. Right. And Sander really had it so terribly bad with Gregor, his face burned to a crisp, his father and sister dying, and more than likely, it's implied, at the hands of this brute. We can't underestimate the impact on Sander's character that Gregor had, perhaps taking almost everything from him. It was terrible luck to be born into a family with one of the most dreadful people of all Westeros. With no redeeming characteristics other than the loyalty to do heinous acts, as we learn with Elia Martel, Gregor stands in contrast to Sander. Sander slowly reveals himself, in spite of the admitted thirst for killing, to be an honest and protective character who has some sense of honor. And we also think it's interesting that it's stated that dogs are afraid to be in Gregor's hall at his home, given that Sandor the Hound leaves the estate after his father's death, never to return when Gregor inherits it. Mm, Right. Okay, so we don't have Sandor's point of view, so for a long time we can't gauge his need for revenge upon Gregor. However, in A Feast for Crows, we seem to get some insight. The elder brother of the Quiet Isle, and this is part of the evidence for Sander being the gravedigger, which we'll cover in depth later, says this to Brienne about the hound, whom he found dying. It was hate that drove him. Though he committed many sins, he never sought forgiveness. Where other men dream of love or wealth or glory, this man, Sander Clegane, dreamed of slaying his own brother, a sin so terrible it makes me shudder just to speak of it. Yes, and the elder brother goes on to further emphasise Sandor's need for revenge over Gregor. I'm going to have this reading later. So it seems that if the gravedigger is Sandor, there has been a confessional. The elder brother seems to know all about him, information that's usually kept internalised. Sandor might have got all of this off his chest to the elder brother, maybe in the process of a spiritual reawakening. 
And it seems killing Gregor has been on Sandal's mind for a long time and that the notion is really central to his character and his thinking. Right. It says killing Gregor was all the Hound lived for. Sander Clegane is a truly damaged soul, and the roots lie in Gregor and his upbringing. With the reader able to sympathise with Sander in this regard, it shades in some pathos and allows us to see Sandor as a complex character, despite being misunderstood by so many characters in-universe. We might wonder if he's suffered some form of post-traumatic distress, which was highlighted when he saw the fire on the Blackwater. Given what he's been through, Sander's gruffness and bloodthirstiness seem understandable, and the positive qualities he's seen to display reflect very well on him after so much torment. Yeah, no wonder he likes a drink. <laughs> yeah, one of the many side effects of having Gregor Clegane as your big brother. Right, and to wrap up the discussion on Gregor and Sandor, and the latter's notions of revenge, it's worth mentioning the possibility that these two could meet once again. We don't have time to look at this too closely right now, but in Bran's coma dream, there might be a hint at a Gregor Sandor reunion in the future. Yeah, it says, One shadow was dark as ash with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armoured like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant in armour made of stone, but when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. So one shadow with the terrible face of a hound and another armoured like the sun. It's worth mentioning that when we first see Sandor and Jamie in game, they're together and similar descriptions like the one in Bran's dream are given to them both and are applied often. So it could be them. Looming over both of them is a giant like Gregor, seemingly having no head with this thick black blood. Robert Strong fits this really well with the stone fist on his armour, perhaps headless, with the thick black blood reminding us of the effects of Oberyn's black poison, which he thickened and turned Gregor's blood black. Right, and like we said, we don't have time to focus on this right now, but let's say there's a fair chance this could be Sander with Robert Strong looming over him. If this is a glimpse of the future, perhaps the brothers Clegane still have scores to settle. Yes, and it would be really interesting if we did get to see the Clegane brothers do battle once again, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And now it's time to move on, and we have a song from the fandom. In our Sansa episode, we had Latomi with Sansa's hymn, from Sandor's scene with Sansa at the Blackwater a very important moment for both characters. So we thought it would be nice to have the song once again, but this time we have a version from Carleen. Gentle mother, find of mercy, save our sons from war we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows. Let them know a better day. Gentle mother, 
Strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury. Teach us all a kinder way, gentle mother, font of mercy. Save our sons from war. We pray. Stay the sword. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri-Term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And that was Carlene with her beautiful rendition of Sansa's Hymn. Carlene has several A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones songs, and she's actually grabbed the attention of George R. R. Martin. On his blog, George said, I get sent links to a lot of YouTube tribute videos. Some of them are funny, some are cool, some are well-intentioned. But this one was amazing. Beautiful stuff. So... Endorsed by George R.R. Martin himself, be sure to check out Carlene's music if you liked Sansa's hymn. And now, following on from the discussion on Gregor, we're going to discuss Sansa's influence on Sander. After the brutality of his childhood, is it any wonder Sander might have been looking for someone to soothe his internal demons? So joining us again is Brash Candy, who has prepared the notes for our Sander-Sansa discussion. Hi, Brash! Hello, Lady Gwyn. It's great to be back to discuss this topic more closely. And we're very pleased to have you. So let's begin. You've suggested that when considering the role Sansa has played in Sander's arc, the starting point should be their interplay on the night of the Hand's tourney, when Sander escorts her back to the Red Keep after the festivities. 
To get inside the dynamics here, we have to appreciate their apparently at odds viewpoints regarding the institution of knighthood and its behavioral codes. That's right. And in exploring their relationship, I found it useful to employ the theoretical insights of mimetic desire, which was introduced by the French philosopher René Girard in his text Deceit, Desire and the Novel. Applying those principles, one is able to see that Sansa enables the re-establishment of a functional link between Sander and the values of the true knight, leading to his personal transformation and the possibility of romantic fulfillment. So how would you define mimetic desire? Well, briefly, the principles of mimetic desire or attraction are that all desires are imitative, meaning that we desire not from a spontaneous and natural reaction within ourselves, but according to the desire of another person or influence, who is known as the model or mediator. In this way, desire follows a triangulated formula between the subject, the object of desire, and the person who models the desire. Okay. So, sounds simple enough. Subject, mediator, object. Now let's apply that to the text. Sander tells Sansa the story of how his face was burnt, telling her, It was Gregor's gift I wanted, a wooden knight, all painted up, every joint pegged, separate, and fixed with strings, so you could make him fight. And, I took his knight, but there was no joy to it, I tell you. I was scared all the while. Of course, we know what happened next, and as we discussed in the previous segment, the fact that the toy was a knight is highly significant. Yes, very significant. And as we learn in this recollection, the toy is Gregor's, thereby making it quite explicit how this incident was defined by mimetic attraction. Furthermore, that he was willing to risk his older brother's wrath to play with the toy suggests that Sander was very much influenced by the ideals of his society concerning knighthood. Yeah, and as we witness with someone like Bran, wanting to imitate those models who would have appeared like the pinnacle of honor and chivalry is not out of the ordinary. By subjecting Sander to this trauma, Gregor sets the stage for Sander loathing the institution of knighthood. As we mentioned earlier, when the crime is covered up in the Clegane household and Gregor is then later knighted, Sander's repulsion towards the institution and his brother is complete. It is. And uh, this quote by the scholar Brian Robinette explains the process we see playing out between these two. It says, Our capacity for imitation can indeed become mechanical and destructive. If the other models my desire, he or she may become my rival in its fulfillment. Because desire is triangular, the impulse towards the object is ultimately an impulse towards the mediator. It harbors here potential for all manner of conflict, including such passions as envy, fear, anger, loathing, hatred, and resentment. Hmm, in other words, Sander is caught in a very harmful relationship to the other, in this instance his brother, and what Gregor represents in his larger societal role as a knight. Sander's deeply cynical outlook is a result of this, and he struggles to differentiate himself from his brother's depraved actions by rejecting the institution. Right. And after he tells his story, Sansa's response is vitally important in establishing their connection. Yeah, we have a passage here. The rasping voice trailed off. He squatted silently before her, a hulking black shape shrouded in the night, hidden from her eyes. Sansa could hear his ragged breathing. She was sad for him, she realized. Somehow the fear had gone away. The silence went on and on. 
so long that she began to grow afraid once more, but she was afraid for him now, not herself. She found his massive shoulder with her hand. He was no true knight, she whispered to him. Yes, so in making this distinction, Sansa sets up a worthy object, the true knight, one that was not unfamiliar to Sander as a child in light of the toy knight symbolism. And in the mimetic structure of desire, she now occupies the role of mediator. In other words, Sansa is now the one modeling or influencing Sander's desire towards this higher form of imitation, even as he mocks her for having the ideal. So Martin wastes no time in setting Sander upon this trajectory, starting with Sansa as an onlooker during his rescue of Loras from Gregor's wrath the next day of the tourney. Yes, and I find it significant that even though Sansa appears to be only a passive observer during the incident, Martin manages to highlight her deeper investment in Sander's fortune through the moist eyed and eager gazing at the joust between him and Jamie, which her father notes. Right. And when it's over, she declares that she knew the Hound would win, and later anticipates his victory of the tournament when he saves Loris. We have the passage here. Is the Hound a champion now? Sansa asked Ned. No, he told her. There will be one final joust between the Hound and the Knight of Flowers. But Sansa had the right of it after all. A few moments later, Sir Loris Tyrell walked back onto the field in a simple linen doublet and said to Sander Clegane, I owe you my life. The day is yours, sir. I am no sir, the hound replied, but he took the victory and the champion's purse, and for perhaps the first time in his life, the love of the commons. They cheered him as he left the lists to return to his pavilion. Yeah, so Sandor, while he still verbally rejects the institution, finds himself in a position of publicly revealing what knighthood means to him. The institution, as represented by his brother, is brutal and vicious, but Sander has been able to own and display the ideal as modeled by Sansa's conviction of true knighthood by defending a helpless victim while maintaining his own honor, as you discussed in the previous segment. Right. So now you've suggested that the oppressive conditions that developed in the Red Keep after Joffrey was crowned and Ned Stark and his household killed effectively worked to trigger the mimetic dynamics in Sansa and Sandra's relationship as embodied by the ideal of true knights and honorable conduct. Sansa, in effect, is making the idea of knighthood palatable to Sander, who, until now, has associated knights with his monstrous brother. True knights are nothing to do with the institution of knighthood, and Sansa teaches Sander this. Yes, precisely. And moving on from the moment Joffrey orders the first beating of Sansa by his Kingsguard, we see Sander offering her advice on how she can mitigate the abuse. He says, save yourself some pain, girl, and give him what he wants. Right. And when Sansa pleads to know what that is, Sander helps her. He wants you to smile and smell sweet and be his lady love. He wants to hear you recite all your pretty little words the way the Septa taught you. He wants you to love him and fear him. And this advice is crucial in helping Sansa to survive her captivity. As she quickly learns to put on a disguise, her courtesy armor, and to hide what she is really thinking and feeling. In moments like these, we see an example of the mutually beneficial aspect of their relationship in play. They both help each other in moments of crisis. Yeah, they do. It seems that until now, Sander was lacking a way to channel his actions towards the self-sacrifice and moral accountability, which are the defining characteristics of the true knight. 
and we can guess that his desire to be a knight was brutally misdirected during his childhood, when Gregor severely punished him for playing with the knight toy and suffered no consequences for his actions. Yes, but in light of Sansa's predicament and her genuine belief in the kind of conduct that should be shown to others, Sander now has a mediator who offers a persuasive alternative to the warp status quo. Okay, so at the end of A Game of Thrones, when Joffrey invites Sander to mock Rob by saying, Your brother's a traitor too, you know. My dog called him the Lord of the Wooden Sword, didn't you, dog? Sander's reply, Did I? I don't recall shows the subtle shift that has begun in his allegiance, which originated in his early interactions with Sansa, and will continue to its culmination in the Riverlands with Arya. Once again, we see how she has affected him. Yes, we do. Chris Fleming, another critic of mimetic desire, observes that desire is not a single line of force which runs between the subject and the desired object, but is more properly figured as a triangle in which the real energy of desire is provided by the mediator. Following this, it should be recognized that as the one who provides this energy of desire, Sansa is not meant to be regarded as a mere damsel in distress. Rather, the mediator plays an active role in teaching the subject what or whom to desire. Sansa's role is not centered on being rescued by a true knight, but in helping to fulfill this ambition in Sandor. Mm, Okay, and the incident with Dantos during Joffrey's name day tourney underlines this process. After Joffrey orders the drunken knight's death, Sansa reacts instinctively. No, you can't. And the passage continues, Joffrey turned his head. What did you say? Sansa could not believe she had spoken. Was she mad to tell him no in front of half the court? She hadn't meant to say anything, only Sir Dantos was drunk and silly and useless, but he meant no harm. Yeah, and when Joffrey appears to doubt her flimsy excuse of it being bad luck to kill someone on your name day, the hound steps in to provide some authoritative support. Yes, here's the passage. The girl speaks truly, the hound rasped. What a man sows on his name day, he reaps throughout the year. His voice was flat, as if he did not care a whit whether the king believed him or no. Could it be true? Sansa had not known. It was just something she'd said, desperate to avoid punishment. Yeah, so in effect, Sander's backing can be seen as a mimetic one, not only ensuring Sansa's safety, but a critical imitative response to her attempt to save someone who is weak and harmless. And as these processes invariably move the subject and mediator closer together via their interest in the object of desire, it is little wonder that we see the development of a romantic interest between Sander and Sansa, especially as their relationship is lacking the kind of characteristic rivalry that can develop in this structure. And their conversation on the serpentine steps is the first real hint of this romantic development, And it's perhaps appropriate that the Hound there makes a statement which could be considered as a personal oath or vow. A Hound will die for you, but never lie to you. (laughs) Yeah, I imagine that. Hassan later has two opportunities to make good on this. Saying enough when Sansa is beaten in the throne room, an objection to Joffrey that could have cost his life, and later when he risked the violent mob to save Sansa during the bread riot. And, of course, nothing is ever simple in Martin's world, and whilst we see Sanders gradual breaking away from the Lannisters and questioning the role he's played with them, 
The ideal of the true knight remains a contentious topic between him and Sansa. Indeed, and when he attempts to take her away from the city on the night of the Blackwater battle, it all goes horribly wrong through his nightmarish confrontation with fire and leaves him feeling as though he has wrecked all possibility of achieving a nobler pursuit. And yet, the personal transformation that has been brought about via Sansa's influence is undoubtedly underway, and Sanders leaving the Lannister service and later trying to join the Starks, as we'll see in the next segment, suggests that Sansa has managed to affect change in his outlook and sense of moral responsibility. That's right. Uh, by serving as the model for his desire, Sansa is instrumental to the process of freeing Sander from the self-destructive obsession with Gregor that had blighted so much of his development. It seems clear that during their time together and culminating in the scene of the Blackwater, Sansa has been a tonic for Sander, soothing his damaged soul. As we'll see in the next segment, his failures to protect her, specifically with regard to the beatings at the hands of his Kingsguard brothers, are now the source of his shame and self-loathing, indicating a fundamental shift towards an ideal of true knighthood. Yes, and as we discussed, the relationship between Sander and Sander worked both ways, which is why notions of a romantic undertone between the two appeals to so many fans. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Brash Candy, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to dig into Sansa and Sander with you. We're really looking forward to what further insights the Reread Project has to reveal. Thanks a lot, Gwen. And yes, we do hope to conduct a thorough and engaging reread into Sandor. Okay, so now we're going to move on to a discussion of Sander Clegane and the other Stark sister. Not the proper lady, but the wolf girl. Starting with a reading of their final moments together, here's Arya leaving the Hound for dead. Needle glinted as she drew it. Polliver had kept it nice and sharp, at least. She turned her body sideways in a water dancer's stance, without even thinking about it. Dead leaves crunched beneath her feet. Quick as a snake, she thought. Smooth as summer silk. His eyes opened. You remember where the heart is? He asked in a hoarse whisper. As still as stone she stood. I... I was only... Don't lie, he growled. I hate liars. I hate gutless frauds even worse. Go on, do it. When Arya did not move, he said, I killed your butcher's boy. I cut him near in half and laughed about it after. He made a queer sound, and it took her a moment to realize he was sobbing. And the little bird, your pretty sister, I stood there in my white cloak and let them beat her. I took the bloody song. She never gave it. I meant to take her, too. I should have. I should have fucked her bloody and ripped her heart out before leaving her for that dwarf. A spasm of pain twisted his face. Do you mean to make me beg, bitch? Do it! The gift of mercy. Avenge your little Michael. Micah! Arya stepped away from him. You don't deserve the gift of mercy. The hound watched her saddle craven through eyes bright with fever. Not once did he attempt to rise and stop her. But when she mounted, he said... A real wolf would finish a wounded animal. Maybe some real wolves will find you, Arya thought. Maybe they'll smell you when the sun goes down. Then he would learn what wolves did to dogs. You shouldn't have hit me with an axe, she said. You should have saved my mother. She turned her horse and rode away from him and never looked back once.
So, Arya Stark leaving Sandor Clegane for dead. And on that note, it's time to talk about the relationship between these two. The Hound is an early entrant on Arya's list, and we're going to take a look at why that is, and what factors contributed to him falling off the list at the end. So, Arya's first introduction to Sandor Clegane was most likely at her home when the royal party came to Winterfell. But it was the Hound's killing of her friend Micah in the Riverlands that made him enemy number one to her. Yeah, and while she doesn't witness the actual act or the return of the body, she hears the tale from others. Jane Poole tells her the Hound cut him up in so many pieces that they'd given him back to the butcher in a bag. And also, Jory tells us something closer to the truth. He cut him near in half. And Ned actually names this murder. That murder lies at the Hound's door, him and the cruel woman he serves. So we should also remember that Aya is very young and impressionable here, and also she's quite a passionate girl as well. Yeah. And now, Sander himself attempts to justify the act when he's put on trial for murder by the Brotherhood Without Banners. He says, I was Joffrey's sworn shield, that butcher's boy attacked a prince of the blood. So we'll see that Sander, while he is a brutal killer, is also honest and possessed of a certain honour. Yes, Sandor does seem to be quite an honest person. As he says to Aya much later, Don't lie. I hate liars. I hate gutless frauds even worse. Yeah, so maybe we can assume that perhaps his version is closer to the truth. When questioned about Micah's crime by Lord Berwick, Sander replies, I heard it from the royal lips. It's not my place to question princes. So regardless of Sandor's defence, the killing of Micah has earned him a prominent place in Aya's prayers, side by side with the people responsible for killing her father. By the time she encounters him again, when they're captives of the Brotherhood Without Banners, she has prayed for his death, quote, hundreds of times. Yeah, and the night before Sander is brought in by the Huntsman, she thinks about the people on her list. She thinks... Maybe some of them are dead. Maybe they're in iron cages someplace and the crows are picking out their eyes. And the next morning, she wakes to find the hound in an iron cage outside her window. Right, and when Sandor is brought before Lord Berwick, he mocks the Brotherhood without banners for calling themselves knights. The Brotherhood begin to accuse him of all the crimes of Lannister soldiers, holding him personally responsible for acts committed by others. His reaction is one of bitter anger. Might be you are knights after all. You lie like knights. Maybe you murder like knights. Yeah, he makes it quite clear what his opinion of knights is, saying, A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the ladies' favours, they're silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. Well, bugger your ribbons and shove your swords up your arses. I'm the same as you. The only difference is I don't lie about what I am. So kill me, but don't call me a murderer while you stand there telling each other that your shit don't stink. Yeah, that's quite a monologue from Sandor there. And there it is again, Sandor's brutal honesty, as we've seen before. When Sandor is given a trial by combat against Lord Berwick... Beric's sword breaks, and he is defeated by the Hound. And then we get this reaction from Arya. 
Arya could only think of Micah and all the stupid prayers she prayed for the Hound to die. If there were gods, why didn't Lord Beric win? She knew the Hound was guilty. Yeah, Arya's very convinced there. But what happens next is perhaps the first moment that Arya sees Sandor as a human being rather than a beast. Please, Sandor Clegane rasped, cradling his arm. I'm burned. Help me. Someone help me. He was crying. Please. Aya looked at him in astonishment. He's crying like a little baby, she thought. Yeah, in spite of that glimpse of his suffering, and in contrast to her sister's reaction, the first time she saw Sandra's pain, Arya grabs a knife and tries to attack the hound as he's helped to his feet. She does, but moments later, when she sees his wounds, we get the faintest glimmer of compassion followed by confusion. It says, his arm, Aya thought, and his face. But he was the hound. He deserved to burn in a fiery hell. Yeah, and Arya accuses him again, full of anger. She's thinking that if he confessed, it might make them kill him once and for all. And She says, you killed Micah. Tell them you did. You did. And Sandor goes on to confess. And his confession, dramatic and graphic as it is, seems designed for maximum impact, causing us to wonder if he had the same hope in mind that someone might kill him. It says, I did, his whole face twisted. I rode him down and cut him in half and laughed. I watched them beat your sister bloody too. Watched them cut your father's head off. So at this, Arya's despair and rage know no bounds, and she screams at him, You go to hell, hound. You just go to hell. But Lord Beric, who sees clearly the hell the hound exists in, and has been revived by Thoros, puts an end to the scene by telling her he has. Yeah, and then to Arya's disgust, the Brotherhood allow the hound to go free, but he returns not long after, looking to retrieve the gold that they took from him. Arya is still filled with rage and threatens not only to kill Sandor, and not realising that Sandor doesn't like his brother very much, she threatens to kill Gregor too. She says, next time I will kill you, I'll kill your brother too. Now, Sandor assures her that she won't, and asks if she knows what dogs do to wolves, a question that remains in her mind for some time after. Yeah, and that question about what would dogs do to wolves almost seems to haunt Arya. She comes back to it repeatedly. When Sandor seizes Arya away from the Brotherhood and carries her off through the Riverlands, she tries to kill him, and more than once. Sandor never hurts her. He does threaten her, and finally he warns her that if she escapes, she'll only get caught by someone worse, like his brother. Right, but then Arya reveals that she already knows Sir Gregor and his men too, having been their captive. Sander is highly amused. He says, caught you? My brother caught you? Gregor never knew what he had, did he? He couldn't have, or we would have dragged you back kicking and screaming to King's Landing and dumped you in Cersei's lap. Oh, that's bloody sweet. I'll be sure and tell him that before I cut his heart out. Yeah, by this time, Arya has learned that Sandor wants to kill his brother. But still here, Arya seems somewhat shocked by Sandor's extreme hatred. Sandor goes on to taunt Arya about Sansa, whom he guesses she had a less than warm relationship with. Yeah, and he also mocks Arya's hatred of him and her desire to kill him. He says, because I hacked your little friend in two, I've killed a lot more than him, I promise you. 
You think that makes me some monster? Well, maybe it does, but I saved your sister's life, too. The day the mob pulled her off her horse, I cut through them and brought her back to the castle, else she would have gotten what Lawless Stokeworth got, and she sang for me. You didn't know that, did you? Your sister sang me a sweet little song. So, Arya's view of the Hound has become increasingly complex. From that brief moment of pity we mentioned previously regarding his wounds, to the revelation of his hatred towards his brother, and now Sandor's claiming to be her sister's protector, which is a role the reader knows to be true. So, for whatever reason, when faced with the opportunity to betray him, Aya fails to do so. Yeah, as they're tricking the ferryman into taking them across the trident, Sanders asks, how do I know you're good for it? Arya's thoughts and Sanders' reply are quite revealing. It says, he's not, she wanted to shout. Instead, she bit her lip. Knight's honor, the hound said, unsmiling. He's not even a knight. She did not say that either. And of course, we know exactly what the hound thinks of knights, so it's hard to judge his lie here. His disdain for the institution extends to those who blindly revere it. As he says to the ferryman, knights have no bloody honour. Time you learn that, old man. Yeah, but it's Arya's failure to betray him that we find significant. It seems that she's either begun to believe that there are worse people out there than the Hound, or that she might indeed see something of the protector in him. Or maybe a bit of both. Exactly. Then, once they're across the trident, the hound finally tells Arya that he's taking her to Rob. He says, If this young wolf has the wits the gods gave a toad, he'll make me a lordling and beg me to enter his service. He needs me, though he may not know it yet. Maybe I'll even kill Gregor for him. He'd like that. And Arya doesn't think much of this plan, but she allows herself to begin to hope. And maybe she put some faith in Sandor's ability to return her to her mother and brother. Then, after their disastrous attempt to enter the twins during the Red Wedding, both of them appear numb, unable to take action after their hopes have been smashed apart. Yeah, and Arya also thinks of her mother constantly, berating the Hound for not letting her, or even helping her, try to save Kat. She wishes that he had let her run into the castle, and he replies, You'd be dead if I had. You ought to thank me. You ought to sing me a pretty little song the way your sister did. So in Sandor's view, he's now saved both lives of the Stark sisters, a situation that some might argue leaves both Stark girls in his debt. When Arya accepts her mother's death after a wolf dream, we see the two of them almost adrift in the Riverlands. Yes, we do. And Sandor has also slipped into the role of teacher, giving Arya instruction in things from how to avoid enemies, how to loot a body, treat wounds, and even how to give the gift of mercy. And then Sandor takes a serious wound after the fight at the inn where he kills Poliver and Arya kills the Tickler and the Squire. Aya treats his wounds and finds herself leaving him out of her prayers. Here's the quote. She had left his name out too, she realised. Why had she done that? She tried to think of Micah, but it was hard to remember what he looked like. She hadn't known him long. All he ever did was play swords with me. It seems like the implication is that as she's become familiar with Sander, she's forgotten Micah. The Hound is no longer in her prayers, perhaps because she sees the inevitability of his death, or perhaps because she no longer thinks him worthy of her brand of mercy. 
Yeah, and remember that while mercy for Aya implies death, for others, notably her sister Sansa, it means pity and compassion. So perhaps a hint of compassion snuck in at the end. Yeah, perhaps it did. At any rate, when the end finally seems at hand, Arya is unable to kill him. Though she's promised him death dozens of times and has long internal debates over her reasons for killing him, when Sander begs her to kill him, after his attempts to bait her into a killing rage fail, she tells him, you don't deserve the gift of mercy. So again, it seems like Aya's feelings about the Hound have become increasingly complex. By the end, we really can't be sure if he doesn't deserve mercy because Aya no longer wants to kill him, or if she merely wants to prolong his suffering. Nor can we say that these options are mutually exclusive. Right. What she's learned from close contact with Sander seems to be at odds with what she thought she knew previously. It would be a small wonder if she were experiencing some amount of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, it's true. Perhaps there was some confusion there. Then, as Aya arrives in Bravos, her thoughts return to the Riverlands. She thinks the Hound had been dying when she left him on the banks of the Trident, burning up with fever from his wound. I should have given him the gift of mercy and put a knife into his heart. Mm, So she seems to be contradicting herself there. Perhaps the two faces of mercy are having a bit of a battle in her heart. Yes, perhaps. And this two-faced concept of mercy can be directly related to the gift Aya will learn about in the House of the Black and White in Bravos. At times, the gift of the faceless men is a punishment, while at other times, it is a release. In either case, the kindly man tells her, death is not the worst thing. It is his gift to us, an end to want and pain. Mm, Yeah, but the kindly man also cautions, it is not for you to say who shall live and who shall die. That gift belongs to him of many faces. And that's a lesson we think Aya may have learned unintentionally in the case of Sandor Clegane. And that's our look at Aya and the Hound. Up next, we'll be taking a close look at what happened to Sandor after Aya left him for dead in the Riverlands, as we examine the gravedigger theory and dig into the concept of identity. But first, here's a message from today's sponsors. Game Brothers Kennels, we offer the finest hunting hounds for sale. Hand raised by caring and compassionate breeders. Our hounds are trained not to enter your hall, will provide protection against all manner of wild beasts and predators, and will never piss on your scabbard or shit on your gauntlets. Contact us via Raven for current availability. Clagane Brothers Kennels, a hound will die for you, but never lie to you. <coughs> Okay, and next we have another special guest, Dog Lover. Some of you will remember Dog Lover from our John episode, and she's also a part of the Sandor reread, but she joined up too late to give us some of her own content. Instead, we'll be talking through the work of Liana Stark, who couldn't be here to join us today. In her absence, Dog Lover has stepped in to help with his presentation. Hello, Dog Lover. Hello, Yoke Boy. Thanks for having me back on Radio Asteros. I'm flattered to have been asked back, especially to step in for Liana Stark, someone for whom I have a lot of respect. 
Yeah, and we do too. And well, thanks for joining us today, and it's great to have you on the show again. Now, we asked Liana Stark to prepare some notes to talk through, and this segment will be a look at the theory that the gravedigger from the Quiet Isle is, in fact, Sandal Clegane. Most people know about this theory, and it's well-worn, but we wanted to lay out all the evidence for you listeners, in case there's things that you've missed. So, dog lover, shall we begin? Sure. So, the Sandor Gravedigger Theory. When Arya left Sandor Clegane to die at the banks of the Trident, initially, it's easy to assume he died, ending his time in the series. But when we take a closer look, there are certain hints and signs that he's actually not dead. Specifically, we see these signs in Brienne's chapter in A Feast for Crows, when she visits the monks at the Quiet Isle. Yeah, the first mention we get of the Hound in this chapter is when Brienne is introduced to Brother Narbert, the proctor of the Order at the Quiet Isle, and mentioning the Hound here brings him to mind as a theme in this chapter. It says, Lady Brienne is a warrior maid, confided Septon Maribold, hunting for the Hound. I, Narbert, seem taken aback. To what end? Brienne touched Oathkeeper's hilt. His, she said. Right, and then Brienne and company pass the stables where they see an ill-mannered warhorse. Sir Hyle Hunt comments on it, and the monks tell him that the horse bit off one of the brothers' ears when they tried to geld it. Even though the monks would like the horse to be a beast of burden and call it driftwood, the horse clearly disagrees. Right, and when Brienne and a group move further up the hill to meet the elder brother, they pass a very tall grave digger who is digging graves in the lichyard. And from the way he moves, Brienne infers that he is lame in one leg. Septon Maribold's dog instantly takes a liking to the tall gravedigger who scratches it behind the ears. Brother Narbert indicates that the gravedigger is a novice, and he has the wool wrappings of a novice around his lower face, hiding it. That's right. The brothers of the Quiet Isle dress in brown and wear robes with wide bell sleeves and pointed cowls. The novices also wear lengths of wool around the lower part of their faces, so only their eyes can be seen. Later on, they spot the gravedigger again. This time he's serving at a table with the other novices and has a lurching gait due to his maimed leg. Afterward, Brienne and the elder brother end up having a chat, which starts off with Brienne talking about a maid of three and ten with auburn hair, whom the elder brother surprisingly identifies as Sansa Stark. He then goes on to say that the man Brienne hunts is dead and that Sandra Clegane is at rest. He then tells Brienne that the Stark girl Sandra traveled with wasn't Sansa after all, but Arya. Hmm, so Liana has summarized this hound gravedigger theory into five main points. So let's look through this evidence. Okay, so the first clue. It sounds quite straightforward that Sandor is dead. However, taking a closer look at what the elder brother actually says gives us the first real clue that Sandor is alive. The hound is dead. Sandor is at rest. The man you hunt is dead. The hound died there in my arms. Right. None of these statements tell Brienne that Sandor Clegane is dead. If the elder brother considers the hound to be but one facet of Sandor's personality, then that facet is dead. But Sandor might live on. This rings especially true in light of the elder brother's tale of how he used to be a knight until he, quote, died in the Battle of the Trident, and how he considers his washing up on the Quiet Isle a rebirth and his current life his, quote, second life. 
Using himself as an example, he's trying to tell Brienne in a roundabout way what happened to Sandor. Here's the quote. I never saw the blow that felled me. Before I could turn, something slammed into my head and knocked me back into the river, where by rights I should have drowned. Instead, I woke here, upon the quiet isle. The elder brother told me I had washed up on the tide, naked as my name day. We are all born naked, so I suppose it was only fitting that I came into my second life the same way. Yeah, the elder brother could be talking about the hound's death figuratively, even though Brienne doesn't understand this at the time. Okay, so on to the second clue. If we then consider that given the elder brother's definition of death and second life, then have we met any new brothers at the Quiet Isle that would fit Sandor Clegane's description? Well, the gravedigger novice seems to fit this perfectly. He's said to be taller than Brienne, and Brienne, of course, herself is very tall. Septim Maribald's dog takes an instant liking to him, and we know that Sandor likes dogs. His limp fits with the severe leg injury Sandor suffered at the fight in the inn at the crossroads. And furthermore, he is a novice, so the lower part of his face just happens to be bound with wool, obscuring his burns from view. Right, and that's suspiciously convenient. Now, the third clue. The ill-mannered horse in the stables, admired by Hyle Hunt, turns out to be stranger. We're told... You may have seen a big black horse in our stables. That was his war horse, Stranger. A blasphemous name. We prefer to call him Driftwood, as he was found beside the river. I fear he has his former master's nature. And given that Stranger is such a vicious creature, and Arya, who knew the horse better, couldn't lead him away, you have to wonder how the monks got this horse through the difficult path across to the Quiet Isle if Sandor was dead. So, now the fourth clue. Sander was nearly dead. What could be behind his miraculous recovery? Well, one of the first things that we learn about the elder brother is that he is famous for his healing. It says, The seven have blessed our elder brother with healing hands. He has restored many a man to health that even the maesters could not cure, and many a woman too. And this would explain how Sandor was brought to the Quiet Isle and also how he managed to survive his wounds. Exactly. Okay, and now the fifth clue. For someone who just held a dying man in his arms, while said man was busy dying, the elder brother seems to know an awful lot about Sandor Clegane. The first surprise is when he identifies Sansa Stark from a brief description given by Brienne. Then he continues to tell Brienne that Sandor didn't travel with Sansa, but Arya. He also states that he knows Arya was with Sandor until she left for the salt pans. Yeah, and furthermore, the elder brother also seems absolutely certain that Sandor Clegane did not commit these atrocities at the salt pans. Then, after that, he goes into detail about what sort of man Sandor was. Here's what the elder brother says about Sandor. I know little of this man, Sandor Clegane. He was Prince Joffrey's sworn shield for many a year. And even here, we would hear tales of his deeds, both good and ill. If even half of what we heard was true, this was a bitter, tormented soul, a sinner who mocked both gods and men. He served, but found no pride in service. He fought, but took no joy in victory. He drank to drown his pain in a sea of wine. He did not love, nor was he loved himself. 
It was hate that drove him. Though he committed many sins, he never sought forgiveness. Where other men dream of love, or wealth, or glory, this man, Sandor Clegane, dreamed of slaying his own brother, a sin so terrible it makes me shudder just to speak of it. Yet that was the bread that nourished him, the fuel that kept his fires burning. Ignoble as it was, the hope of seeing his brother's blood upon his blade was all this sad and angry creature lived for, and even that was taken away when Prince Oberyn of Dawn stabbed Sir Gregor with a poisoned spear. So, this is a wealth of information from someone the elder brother claimed to have met very briefly while Sandor was in agonizing pain and dying. This strongly indicates that he knows Sandor a lot better than he lets on, which would be another indicator that Sandor is, in fact, alive. Yes, Okay, so there's five pieces of good evidence from the text. It's worth mentioning that thematically, this chapter is set around Septon Marable's famous broken men speech, which criticizes war and what it does to the people who are turned into weapons. Joined with the elder brother's speech about rebirth after shedding one's own personality, it looks like Sandor truly needs to shed the negative sides of his old persona in order to move forward. In A Storm of Swords, Thoros of Mia stated similarly to the elder brother that Sandor Clegane was a man in torment. Yeah, if the elder brother's words about Sandor are true, the hound is dead, Sandor is at rest, then perhaps there is hope for Sandor to not only recover from physical wounds, but from psychological wounds as well. In order to move forward and shed his hound persona, he needs to stop living his life with the single purpose of killing his brother. The elder brother is a living, breathing example of how a destructive life can be turned around to something productive. So with him as an example, there must certainly be hope for Sandor too. And the elder brother's name actually takes on additional meaning as well, as an elder brother with a more positive effect on Sandor than Gregor. Yes, there may be a play on the elder brother there. Right, and whether or not the two brothers will meet again is open to discussion, and we think that it is possible, but we don't subscribe to the Clegane Bowl idea, by the way, that the two will fight in Cersei's trial. But as Liana has highlighted, if Sandor wants to move on from his days as the Hound, he must relinquish the thirst for vengeance that used to drive him. And also open to discussion is whether or not Sandor will ever leave this quiet isle. Many readers who do subscribe to the Gravedigger theory actually argue that Sandor's role in the series is over, that George Martin has retired him on the quiet isle. To counter this, I would like to add that when you take into consideration Bran's prophetic vision at the beginning of the series, where he envisions the Hound, Jamie, and possibly Gregor together, Sandor winning trial by combat and Thoros saying that R'hllor still has use for Sandor, and the raven Arya sees following them, speculated to be Bloodraven, right after the fight at the Crossroads ends, and that finally how frequently he's been mentioned throughout the series, even after his supposed death, all of this hints that Sandor still has an important role to play in the series. If not, to write him out of the series right after Arya's abandonment of him would be rather anticlimactic, especially just for Sandor to spend the rest of his life in quiet reflection. Yes, so I think we all get the feeling that Sandor's story is one yet unfinished. And that's our look at the gravedigger Sandor Clegane theory. And thanks so much to our friend Liana Stark for preparing these notes. 
And of course, special thanks to you, Dog Lover, for joining us today and helping us with this presentation. We really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. And I'd also like to thank Liana Stark. Okay. And best of luck with the reread. We hope it goes really well for you. Thank you. We're very excited. Take care. Goodbye, Dog Lover. Goodbye. There are no true knights, no more than there are gods. If you can't protect yourself, die and get out of the way of those who can. Sharp steel and strong arms rule this world. Don't ever believe any different. Don't ever believe any different. So, thanks for listening today to our collaboration with the Sander Clegane Reread Project. Many thanks to Milady of York, Brash Candy, Dog Lover, and Lyanna Stark for working so closely with us. It's been a really great experience. Yeah, it was a pleasure to collaborate, and best of luck with the reread, guys. We'll link to the reread when it's up and running, in case any of you listeners are interested in following or participating. Remember that it begins on the 16th of February 2015 at the reread subforum at westeros.org. And that's our look at Sander Clegane, a truly interesting secondary character from Westeros, and closer to the ideal of the true knight than he might think. It was interesting to get different kinds of analysis in this episode from different people, and we hope you listeners enjoyed this collaborative experiment of ours. Yes, we do. We like to try doing things differently sometimes. And so we'll be back very soon with an episode on another man with knightly issues, Jamie Lannister. In fact, it will be a double episode, we're going to extend it in length, because we'll be covering both Jamie and his golden-haired sister-lover, Cersei, together. That's right, together where they belong, or do they? Come back next time to hear what we have to say about those two, and the theme of knighthood will carry on through our next several episodes. Yes, more knights and honour to come. And as always, before we go, we have to give credit to those whose creations were used here today. So, thanks to George R. R. Martin for great characters like Sander Clegane, and to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to use elements of their music. The music of Kevin MacLeod was also used today. His song, The Descent, was used in the Sander Gregor reading. Visit Incompetech.com for royalty-free music. And thanks also to Colleen for letting us feature her excellent Sansa's hymn. And we'll link to Colleen's website for those of you that wish to explore her music further. And speaking of websites, visit RadioWesteros.com, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter or Tumblr, and don't be afraid to say hi. Yeah, we love hearing from you listeners. Come and tell us what you think of our show and which characters you'd like us to cover and so on. And until next time, goodbye. Bye.